Good morning, church. My name's John. I serve here as one of the pastors. If you uh, have just started coming to the church this summer, I haven't had a chance to meet you. You don't know who I am. I don't know who you are. I've been out on sabbatical this summer. It's been a, a great time of rest and relaxation. And at the same time, at GBC, we say a sabbatical is not no work. It's different work. And uh, I've been able to do some different work. I got some coaching in preaching. I took a class in church history, really enjoyed uh, my time away, but at the same time, man, it is good to be back. feels like going away on a long trip, and then you finally get to come home and sleep in your bed again, eat your own food, get back to the normal routine. So it's good, it's good to be back. I'm excited to open God's Word uh, together this morning. If you've been following along in the news at all the last couple years, you may have noticed some really encouraging headlines about the church. Some of you are thinking, I don't think I've been reading the same headlines as you. But in the midst of some really hard stuff that the church has been going through the last few years, there actually have been some really encouraging headlines, some things that have popped up. And if you're an opportunistic preacher like myself, you need to draw attention to these things. So look, Put that uh, slide up on the screen there, Matt. And you can see some of the headlines in lots of different kinds of news sources about the church, about churchgoers specifically. What the articles and the research behind them is sharing is that in the, in the middle of some of the worst statistics about mental health that our country has ever faced, churchgoers, Churchgoers are experiencing longer life. Churchgoers are experiencing better sleep. Churchgoers are experiencing less heart trouble, less depression, less anxiety, and less stress. Two Harvard scientists are, are leading some of this research in the the article headline on the screen is from Christianity Today, and it points out that if church attendance in our country continues to dip, we're on a, a trend of dipping, if that continues in our country, America may actually be facing a health crisis, a mental health crisis. Apparently, going to church is just that good for you. Going to church is just that good for you. If you know me at all, you, you know I like to ask the questions, the question why. Why? And maybe you're like me, right? Why? Why is that true? Why? What's going on in the church? Why is that happening? Well, as the researchers start to dig in a little bit and pull back the covers, so to speak, and look at what is going on in the church, there's a few things that, that jump out as to why this is true. And the one that's most fascinating to me is that the research shows that the healthiness in church is directly connected to our interconnectedness as people. So why church is so good for you is because of the relationships that you have in the church. It's the community experience in the church. 
It's the friendships that you have in the church that are different than friendships like you can have anywhere else. It's because of this deep friendships and connectedness and relationships in the church that the church is a healthy place for churchgoers. In the church, you can be known in ways that you aren't known in other places. You can be cared for and you can care for others. The community experience, the relationships in the church matter. The community experience that we're building here matters. So then I ask, if that's the truth, if that's what's going on, then I ask, well, how do we be that church? Or if we are that church, how do we keep going? How do we be a healthy church? How do we have healthy relationships in the church? How do we build a strong community in the church? How do we do this? If it's that good for us, how do we do it? How do we keep it going? Well, here's the thing. The purpose of the church the ultimate purpose of the church, I'm going to say this really clearly out front, is not so that you sleep better. It's not so that you live longer. It's not so that you're less anxious about school starting in just a few days. It's not so that you have less stress. It's not so that you sleep better. That's not the ultimate purpose of the church. We need to declare that right from the start. The ultimate purpose of the church is to glorify God, to lift up Jesus, to learn from him and from the word of God, to sing praises together, glorify him and honor him. That's the ultimate goal of the church. But here's the thing. We'd be fools to think that our relationships in this room, our connectedness with each other, the way that we talk to each other and relate with each other doesn't affect that experience. Our relationships matter in how we honor and glorify God. Our relationships matter for how we understand the truth of God. Relationships matter to God. Our connectedness, our experience matters in how we honor and glorify Him. In fact, the Bible is full of letters. The New Testament is full of letters written to churches. And one of the primary themes in those letters to churches is how do you relate to each other? How do you talk to each other and how do you care for each other? The Bible clearly shows us that relationships matter to God. We probably guessed it this morning. Our passage is going to is going to be about the community experience in the church. It's going to be about our relationships in the church. We've been making our way through the book of 1 Timothy this summer. Been studying 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to Pastor Timothy and his church, the church that he is leading in the ancient city of Ephesus. And the letter is all about how do you lead in the church? How do you create a healthy church experience. We're going to be in chapter 5 this morning. Let me read verses 1 and 2 this morning. If you want to flip to it on your phone or in your Bible, I'll, the words will also be up on the screen. I'll read it for us this morning. Paul starts out, 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2. 
Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Father, brother, mother, sister. What do these terms have in common? What do these terms have in common? They're family terms, right? These are, these are words that describe a family. Father, brother, mother, sister. We don't hear co-worker, boss, employee. Those are not found in this passage. Paul is really clear here. The church is not a corporation. The church is, is not a community organization. The church is to be a family. The church is a family. Over and over and over throughout Scripture, the church is defined and talked about as a family. The authors of Scripture use time and time again things like father, brother, mother, sister to explain the type of relationships we are to have in the church. We should approach each other and we should interact with each other and we should talk with each other like we're a family with grace and compassion, love and commitment. This a depth that is only found in families, this an unrelenting care for one another and commitment to one another. And some of you may be thinking, that doesn't describe my family. We fight all the time. Have you met my father? I haven't talked to my sister in 15 years. Our family is a mess. And I get it. I mean, we have set up some sweet family times in our, our family. I'm raising five kids. There's seven of us. And we've had some of these sweet family times that in just a few moments, it's like we're in a war zone with each other, right? I mean, it happens. Families are places that often are not the primary places where we feel, experience, compassion, and grace. But here's the thing. The family is what God has designed, and the family is what God has communicated, and the family is what God has given us for us to experience his love, for us to grow in sanctification, for us to grow in our discipleship. The family is established to to grow us and to give us a picture of God's relationship with the church, Christ's relationship with the church. When the family, when the family is functioning as it should, when the family is at its best, that is what the church is supposed to look like. That's what the church is supposed to look like. A family. All the the good things that you can conjure up in your minds when you think about what a family should be, that's what the church family should be like. We should be like a family. We are a family. In chapter 5, Paul addresses and points out two groups in the church, two groups in the family of God. The first one is, is the whole church, the congregation. The second, 
he talks about widows specifically, and we're going to go through these two groups. The first of these groups, the, the church family as a whole, we read about in verses 1 and 2. Old men, young men, older women, and younger women. So no matter who you are, you fall into one of these categories. You're an old man or a young man. If you're in your early to mid-40s like myself, you fall into the younger man category. So we're clear. Or you are a younger woman or an older woman. He's talking about the entire church here. And here, right out of the gate, right out of the gate, Paul sets the tone for how we are to relate to one another in the church. He knows really, really clearly, I mean, really, really directly, he knows issues are going to happen. People are going to sin. There is going to be conflict. You are going, Timothy, he's talking to Timothy here and to the church, you're going to have to have conversations that are difficult. You're going to have to rebuke an old man who's made a bad decision, living in sin. That, that's difficult. That's conflict. So what does Paul say? He says, don't be harsh. Don't be harsh in how you interact with each other. Don't be harsh to, to that man. Treat him like you would with ultimate respect, like a son would to their father. We shouldn't be harsh with each other, church. We shouldn't be mean to each other. We should be gentle with each other and tender with each other, care for each other, have grace for each other. That's what Paul is saying here. Is that don't talk harshly to each other. And then he goes on to say, if you're, if you're with your brother, you know, brother to brother, you, you've got a little bit more latitude, right, in the brother to brother relationship. Like I've got men in my life who will say to me, don't do that. Don't, don't do that. That's a bad idea. You know, I know, yeah, you should do this instead, or whatever. They, in a brother-to-brother relationship, there can be a little bit more directness. Brothers, brothers have a way of talking to their brother that's unique. Have any, any, I mean, who's raising multiple sons, right? Like, you know what that's like. I have three boys in my family, and there's these times where you get with your son, and you're like, listen, you can't take the screwdriver and put it in the outlet. Something bad is going to happen to you if you do that. And you're trying to be really, and then all of a sudden the older brother comes in and was like, what are you doing? You're going to die. You can't do that. That's what Paul is saying here. There's there's not this harshness, but there's a way that brothers can relate to each other or siblings can relate to each other. It's different than a father-son relationship. In our relationships, in our relationships with the opposite sex, Paul says absolute purity. Absolute purity in our relationships with the opposite sex. Timothy, a young man, single man, pastor in Ephesus, and Paul says, I don't want a whiff, Timothy. I don't want a whiff of any abuse or intimidation or inappropriateness in your relationships with the opposite sex. Absolute purity. Church. Church. That's what we need to have. That's 
what we need to be like in this body. Absolute purity in how we look at each other, how we talk about each other, how we care for one another. Absolute purity. Verse 3. We'll pick it up there. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead, even while she lives. All right, I'm going to skip verses 7 and 8. I'm going to come back to them. If you've ever read Paul and his letters, he can be a little bit mosaic and windy. So he says some things that I want to give a, a lot of attention to, but I'm going to do those in a second. I'm going to continue on with his instructions about widows. In verse 9, No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60 has been faithful to her husband and is well known for her good deeds. And these are the good deeds that she can do and she is doing. She's bringing up children, showing hospitality in the church, washing feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list, for when their sensual sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, They want to marry. Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only, excuse me, not only do they become idlers, they also become busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have in fact already turned away to follow Satan. Verse 16, If any woman who is a believer has widows in her care, she should continue to help them and not let the church be burdened with them so the church can help those widows who are really in need. Now clearly, to Paul, I mean, this is a lot of instruction. There's a lot of verses on how to care for widows in the church. Clearly, this was an important issue for Paul. Clearly, this was an important issue, an important group of people in the church at that time. The letter was written roughly around 62 AD, and life at that time was difficult if you were a widow. Your, if your husband, who uh, could have passed away, we, we got to remember back then, war, manual labor, a lot of men died. Younger men died leaving widows in a situation where they could be neglected or they could be abused. They were a vulnerable population. We have to remember there were were no 401k plans. There was no social security back then at that time, no social structures to care for these women who could be easily neglected and abused. Well, today there's certainly instruction for us to look out for widows who need care and need help. But what we can take from this, from Paul's teaching, is not just widows, but how should we care for those vulnerable that are in our midst now today? 
I don't think Paul's instruction here is a, a word-for-word manual in how to create a program to care for widows in Glen Ellen today. But what I do think is that widows, yes, are important, but more than that, that we should look at what are those vulnerable, vulnerable populations in our world today, in the culture around us, and in the church specifically, what are and who are the vulnerable among us? And how should we think of them? And how should we treat them? Well, Paul gives some instruction. He gives some instruction. The first thing he says is that we must recognize them. Right away in verse 3, it says recognize them. Well, this means that those that are vulnerable among us, those that risk abuse and neglect among us, we just, we don't pass right by them. We don't neglect them. We recognize them. We see them. We recognize those who need care, whether it be financially or relationally or physically. We recognize. The second thing that Paul gives is some instruction about providing a place of service and leadership for them in the church. The list of things that, that these widows who are who are in the faith following Jesus, the things that they are involved in, the things that they are doing, right? They're washing feet. They're, they're being hospitable in the church. They're caring for those that are in need. They have a place as a part, an equal part of the body. And they, they, they're members of what's going on here. This isn't some kind of group that is of lesser existence or standing. The vulnerable among us should feel the same. That there's places of leadership and service for everyone here, and we want to be a, a church body that encourages that. No matter who you are, if you're following Christ, there's a place for you here. Well, then finally, Paul says we, that we need to have discernment as well. We need to have discernment in the body, that there are, there are things that widows can get involved in. He, he uses that example here, but there's, there's things that can happen, and um, people can, can take advantage of different systems that are going on or things that we're doing. And so we need to have wisdom and discernment. We need to give the right advice to people and the right wise counsel to people. There needs to be discernment in how we function as a church. All right, verse 7 and 8. Let me get back to verse 7 and 8. We'll camp here for a little bit this morning. Verse 7 says, give the people these instructions so that no one may be open to blame. So Paul is saying to Timothy, these instructions that I just laid out about how you're to interact, son to father and brother to brother and mother to daughter and sister to sister, those things teach the people. And these things that I just laid out for you about how we care for widows and what we're supposed to do and the responsibilities families have to care for people in their family and the responsibilities that we have for in the church to care for the vulnerable. Paul says, make sure, Timothy, you're teaching these things. And again, most likely this letter would have been read aloud to the church body. So he's saying, make sure that no one doesn't get this. Make sure that they get this, Timothy, so that no one is to blame. And then he goes on to say, anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse 
than an unbeliever. It's like, boom. It's just a bomb right in the middle of the passage, isn't it? I don't know about, it feels weighty to me. Like that's a, that's a big, big, big statement that Paul is making. And so, so what do we do with it? What do we do with verse 8? How do we understand this? How do we apply this today? The first thing I would say is we need to be, we need to be careful with it, right? We need to understand it. If you're handling a bomb, I've watched enough movies, right? You need to be careful. Cut the green wire. We need to be careful. With, we, so we need to look at it. We need to understand it about what's going on here. We need to, what's hard about it, we need to embrace. What's confusing about it, we need to understand. What we thought wrongly about it, we need to reject. So we need to be careful about this, with this verse. Because what we can do if we're not careful in our hearts is we can say things like, that dude doesn't provide for his family, he might as well go to hell. He's out of the faith. That person over there, they're not, she's not providing for her family. She's worse than an unbeliever. Look at her. The second thing we can do if we're not careful is we can start to do one of these, right? We pat ourselves on the back. We say, look at how good I am at providing for my family. Look at these schools that they get to go to and this neighborhood that they get to live in and the vacations we get to go on. And man, look at how much income I have. And we start to say, well, I'm not like them. I'm not like them. I provide. I, I do what I am supposed to do. So we need to be careful. And what Paul is saying here is, it's clear, right? It's clear. If you have a family, you should provide for them. You should care for your family, especially if you have people in your family that are in need. You should care for them. Reach out to them. Embrace them. Love them. Care for them. Paul is clear. It's being selfish or being lazy, that's not good. That's not how we're supposed to live. But what's particularly important here and what Paul says is that it's denying the faith that gets you into trouble. It's the denial of faith that puts someone in the position of being worse than an unbeliever. So follow me here a little bit, okay? Follow me here a little bit, because that, we can ask ourselves, what does that mean? Well, what Paul's saying, what, what's the faith? What are we talking about here? These are big things that Paul is saying. So what is he talking about? Well, follow me here a little bit. See, the truth is, is that the faith, in the center of our faith, the heart of the Christian faith is compassionate love. The heart, soul, core of the Christian faith is to love. Compassionate love. Love those who are weak. Love those who are vulnerable. Love those who are broken. Love those who are unlovable. 
That's the core of the Christian faith, this compassionate love. This compassionate love that was exemplified by our Savior, Jesus Christ. The core of the Christian faith is compassionate love shown to us by Jesus Christ. When we were lost, when we were broken, when we were ugly and full of shame and guilt and sin, He didn't look at us and walk by. He didn't look at us and say, clean yourself up. He looked at us with an unfathomable grace. And he said, I love you. And I'm going to die for you. Because I love you. And I want to restore you. I'm going to pay the ransom of the sin that is swallowing you whole. And you are broken. And you are sinful. And your life is a mess. But I love you still, even though you're unlovable. It's in His grace, His grace poured out upon us that we have an example and we feel this unbelievable, compassionate love a tender love, an undying love. It's Jesus, church. It's Jesus. And when we comprehend those things, and when we know those things, if if that's the faith, saved by grace alone, not anything I've done, totally depraved, and saved by Jesus, by grace alone. And we understand that. And we believe that. And we're in the faith. And then we go on to treat people without compassion and grace and tenderness and love. We are worse than an unbeliever. It would have been better that we never knew this stuff in the first place, is what Paul is saying. He's saying that if you know this stuff, and you are in the faith, and you believe this stuff. You you can't deny it. You have to have compassion. You have to have gentleness. You have to have tenderness for each other and for the vulnerable among us. Are you tracking? This is what Paul is saying, that when we choose to be selfish and lazy, the danger is that we are and not caring for people, the danger is that we actually are denying the faith. We're actually looking at other people differently than how Christ looked on us. We love because He first loved us. We cannot live as though that is not true. People in the church Every day, we have to remember the grace of Jesus Christ poured out on us, broken, ugly sinners, restored by him. And we walk through this world and we look at people with that same love, grace, and tenderness, especially in this body and in this room. 
That is who we are to be as a church. Paul says, I'm going to find myself here, sorry. Somebody said in the first service, you got a lot of energy coming back. <laughs> sorry. <clears throat> Romans 15, verse 7. Paul summarizes it this way. He says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. If you are going to tattoo something on your body, if you're going to paint a piece of barn wood and hang it in your home, this is one of those verses. I mean, we welcome. Welcome one another. Welcome people. Welcome everyone. Welcome as Christ has welcomed you. That brings glory to God. That brings glory to God. It doesn't say that we need to accept everything that's going on in people's lives. We don't need to embrace all the sin that's going on in their lives. But man, we need, we need to welcome them just as Christ welcomed us. We do a heart check on ourselves. We look at others and we look at people and we think, nah, they got no place here. Because that's not what Jesus did for me and that's not what Jesus did for you. He welcomed us and we need to welcome others. So how do we answer the question, how do we have healthy relationships and strong community in the church? We love others like Jesus loved us. We recognize each other. We actually know each other. We encourage each other. We care for each other. We respect each other. We have grace with each other. We are patient with each other. We are gentle with each other. We persevere with each other. We don't quit on each other. Let me pray. Father God, we love you. I thank you for your word this morning. Lord, it, it's cuts my heart. I want to do better. I want to do better as a man of God. I, and I want our church, I want this church to be a gospel community for people, for us, that we live out the gospel, this grace that you poured out on us. I pray that we pour that grace out through your spirit on others. Help us to apply this word to our lives, to even today as we go from this place. Help us to honor and glorify you. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing a song uh, in close.